the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, we bring you the recording of a recent event titled The Cost of Conflict, Five Years of the Syria Crisis. Good evening, folks. We want to thank you for coming out this evening, Tuesday night after a long weekend. It's good to see so many of you here. Before we get underway, though, we'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet this evening and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. We also want to uh, thank the Crawford School of Public Policy for hosting this event and for making this discussion possible tonight. My name's uh, Daryl Curden. I'm the Director of the Humanitarian Emergency Affairs Team for World Vision Australia in Melbourne. Prior to working with World Vision, I was a Salvation Army officer for 23 years, uh, serving in Sri Lanka and India, New Zealand, Northern Territory and Victoria, and then uh, heading up emergency responses since the Asia tsunami in India, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and then the Haiti earthquakes and the Christchurch earthquake as well. My claim to fame in the Christchurch earthquake was having my photograph taken with Prince William in the glass house. (laughs) Or that's what he told me. (laughs) So as uh, World Vision at the moment uh, is currently responding around the world to 19 emergencies in 34 countries and providing aid to around about 5.7 million people. Our priorities at the moment include South Sudan, the Central African Republic, El Nino in Africa and in the Pacific, the increasing Zika virus, particularly in the Latin American continent, finishing up our work in the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, where World Vision led the safe and dignified burials of over 11,000 people. And of course, as we are here tonight, the Syria and the regional response. It's for this that tonight, of course, we meet. And today marks the beginning of the sixth year of the Syria crisis. And you don't need me to outline the devastation of these past years. But in an attempt to understand the cost of conflict, we, with Frontier Economics, are launching the Cost of Conflict for Children report. We've had the opportunity to speak with people, uh, parliamentarians and DFAT today, and we are grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you about it tonight. So the people that you will meet tonight and who will speak to this report and give you a little bit of an understanding of the context include Sahar Yassin here on the panel, who is the Humanitarian Advocacy Lead with World Vision in Jordan. She's based in Amman. And in her role, she is is consistently engaging with the Jordanian government and local and international civil society on issues regarding the Syria crisis and specifically advocates on the needs of refugees and host communities in Jordan. She's currently working on her thesis for a master's degree in human rights and human development at the University of Jordan. Emma Wanchap, who is a co-author of the recently released report and is a manager of humanitarian and development policy at World Vision Australia. 
She's held humanitarian child protection policy positions previously, as well as being a lawyer in the private practice in Australia and with the UN ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. She was deployed to World Vision Syria crisis response in early 2015. Kevin Borum, who is with us tonight, and thank you, has been teaching at the ANU College of Law since 2002. He's convening international law of human rights and lecturing in international law and advanced international law. Kevin's first career was an officer of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he served in Australia's diplomatic missions in Colombo, Hanoi, Manila, Tehran and New York where he was Australian Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations from 1987 to 1989. Kevin's work in Canberra specialises in multilateral and regional issues, and among other appointments, Kevin was Assistant Secretary, International Organisation Branch, from 1992 to 1994. And Stephen House is a Professor of Economics at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. He's the Director of the Development Policy Centre. He has served as Director of the International and Development Economics Program sorry, of the Crawford School from 2009 to 2014. And prior to joining the Crawford School in 2009, Stephen was Chief Economist at the Australian Agency for International Development. He worked from 1994 to 2005 at the World Bank, first in Washington and then in Delhi, where he was lead economist for India. In 2008, he worked on the Garneau Review on Climate Change, where he managed the review's international work stream. So tonight, you'll hear from these people and you'll get an opportunity to ask them questions about whatever you like, but hopefully about the report. As we've said, World Vision has a regional office and is involved in the Syria response and the regional response. Our office is based in Amman, in Jordan, and it's set up specifically to respond to the Syria crisis in Jordan, Turkey, Iran, Iraq and Lebanon. You'll understand that World Vision is an operational humanitarian organisation. So tonight we'd also like to apologise in advance if, for operational reasons, we need to defer a question because of our impartial, neutral and independent status. We cannot answer all your questions in that regard. So please bear with us. But there may be others that would like to comment on those kind of questions. So let me, uh, let me hand over now to Emma. As I said, Emma is the Manager of Policy and co-author of the report, and she's going to provide us with an overview of the report and its findings. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, I just want to touch on two aspects of the report. The first, and I think potentially more interesting, is why we did it. And then I'll go through the findings and the recommendations, which I won't spend too much time on just because I'd quite like you to write, read the report as well. Um, so just to give you a bit of an insight into why a humanitarian development organisation might partner with an economics consultancy to do a report on Syria, um, the main, one of the main reasons why we did this was to 
we wanted to change the narrative a little bit about the way the Syria crisis is being talked about, certainly by NGOs, but also by the international community. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that World Vision has um, the ability to completely change the narrative on its own, but there is a, quite a bit of a groundswell about um, speaking or cutting through the political issues and the horrific human cost um, that this Syria crisis has caused. Sadly, though, as we know, it doesn't quite get as much media attention anymore um, and it probably doesn't quite get the, kind, the same kind of um, quantitative analysis that, can, that economics can provide, sadly. Um, so with that in mind, um, we wanted to look to an economics agency that could analyse a lot of the data that was floating around on the crisis. So the World Bank, as you know, does a lot of work in this regard, um, along with a lot of other Syrian organisations. And we wanted to quantify um, what we were seeing on the ground, and that is the great cost, both human but also economic, um, and turn it into an, an economic analysis. Um, now, on the reports finding themselves they go to the growth, um, the, the lack of growth, basically, of um, the conflict. So, well, the, the lack of growth that the conflict has had on... Uh, sorry, the, the growth that has um, suffered as a result of the conflict. So um, the cost of the conflict on children is hard to measure, but the growth that they would have seen should the conflict not have happened is, is easier to measure, um, and that's what the economics um, analysis is trying to achieve now, the other thing that we were, the reason why we wanted to do this report is that, as we instinctively know, conflict is outrageously expensive. It's ex outrageously expensive on human life, but it's also outrageously expensive in terms of economics. And I'll, I'll cover the findings and what, what the economics fi economic figures are shortly. Um, now, it's also expensive, and any of you that follow UN Global Appeals, Humanitarian Appeals, will see that it's the biggest appeal this year globally at the humanitarian response level. Um, it goes upwards of $11 billion, um, and that's, that's almost in, extraordinarily difficult to, to um, fathom. Um, but beyond that, it's also... That's the immediate needs. We're also wanting to look at the longer-term rebuilding and investment needs that... Um, that will be needed in Syria. So that's just to give you a little bit of an overview of why we did the report and um, and why why we're looking at the economics. Now, when I tell you these figures and the findings of the report, I'd like you to keep in mind, and this is a, a point that the response director, um, Wynne Flatten, our World Vision response director in Amman, um, likes to point out to people, and that is that behind every statistic, behind every number, behind every dollar... There's a child, there's a family, there's a community that is affected by that number. So um, when I mention these very large numbers, and when you see the really large numbers that are associated with Syria, the refugee numbers, the, the amount of people that are in need in Syria, which is 13 million people, it's almost difficult to imagine half the population of Australia is in need of humanitarian assistance. So I'd just like you to remember that um, when I give you the findings of the report. So the findings of the report... Um, as I said, measure the lost growth opportunities for Syria and for Syrian children. So the first figure um, that Frontier Economics has found is that the cost to Syria today, or to the end of 2015, is $275 billion US, which is about, give or take a couple of dollars, $370 million Australian dollars, or about what um, Australia makes in exports per year. So quite a large number. Um, the second finding of the report is that if the conflict were to end this year, 
that cost of the first five years would double. So if we continue in this ceasefire that is in and cessation of hostilities that is in train at the moment, if it holds, um, then the cost will stop. But if it continues and the conflict continues until the end of the year, it's likely to cost between 450 and 690 billion USD um, to Syrian to the Syrian um, country itself. Um, big, difficult numbers. I know to, to fathom. I, I find them very difficult to to fathom in my in my head, um, and particularly in my lawyer brain. Um, but. The third finding of the report is the most, I think, significant and most um, interesting for what's going on at the moment in terms of the cessation of hostilities discussion, and that is that if we allow the conflict to continue for another four years to 2020, the cost will be about 1.3 trillion USD. Or if you convert it, it's about the GDP of Australia for 2014. So an extraordinary amount of loss in growth that the children of Syria... Um, won't see in their future. Now, on top of all of that, there's a lot of figures to digest, so I'll let you... um, I'll allow that to sit for a second. The other thing to think about in this report is that um, in the event that the the conflict ends in 2020, it will take between 10 and 15 years to rebuild. Um, So it's not just these immediate costs and the growth that's um, associated with the lost growth now. It's that period of reconstruction and the report the aim of the report is in essence to show that with all the costs that are associated with the the crisis now we also need to start thinking um, in the donor community in the humanitarian and development community about investing and reconstructing in Syria one can only hope and I'm quite optimistic about this that the cessation of hostilities agreement will hopefully hold or that there will be a peaceful resolution in the foreseeable future. Um, And if that's the case, and we're lucky enough for that to be the case, the rebuilding is the biggest. That's kind of day zero in a sense. And the rebuilding effort is going to be the very, very large undertaking. Um, So the recommendations in the report from the findings, the the very, very big numbers, um, relate to that reconstruction and rebuilding. So funding immediate appeals, but also the reconstruction effort, looking donors and and governments um, and the international community, the UN Security Council, looking at how they can rebuild Syria um, and and spending a concerted effort to plan that out. Um, There's a number of other recommendations, which if you've worked across the Syria crisis crisis at all or follow it in the media, there's a lot of protection issues around people inside Syria, so ensuring that they're protected sufficiently under international humanitarian law and human rights law, um, and also ensuring humanitarian access under the UN Security Council resolutions that um, have been in place and Australia, the Australian government, wonderfully contributed to. Um, And then there's also recommendations about how to protect... Um, children and families seeking refuge, um, so refugee protection, um, and of course the final recommendation being to end to find a peaceful solution to the conflict. So that's a very broad overview of a very dense economics report. Um, I will actually hand over to Stephen now to um, discuss some of the um, the costing estimates with his extensive economics background and to speak to the humanitarian response as well.
Thank you, Emma, and good afternoon, everyone. And on behalf of the Crawford School and the Development Policy Centre, I'd also like to welcome you. I'm very happy to have this chance to partner with World Vision. Uh, somewhat short notice, uh, but good that uh, nevertheless uh, people have come along. <coughs> it is certainly hard to think of a more important uh, issue right now uh, worldwide. Um, I've been asked to provide a few comments uh, on the report. You know, it seems like a little um, churlish or um, kind of beside the point to make any critical remarks <laughs> of something which is obviously addressing such an important issue, but uh, since you asked me, <laughs> you know, um, I'll make a few kind of uh, comments and uh, then go on to talk about the funding issues. I mean, I was a bit surprised, I mentioned this to Emma by the title of the report, um, I was actually reading it on my phone, and uh, I kind of somehow I skipped the front page, and uh, I was looking at the title of the seminar, which is The Cost of Conflict. So when I finally got the office this morning, I actually printed out the report, I saw it's Cost of Conflict for Children. I thought I must have missed a whole lot of the report, because it's the cost of the conflict to GDP. That's what the report's about. And uh, that's not really uh, children. And in fact, uh, I mean, the sad truth is, if a child dies, the capita GDP goes up and everything else being equal. So I can see um, longer term, you know, yes, these children will live in a poorer country, but it is the cost to everyone of uh, this conflict. It's uh, not in particular the cost to children, so I don't think the title is quite appropriate. Uh, another comment I'd say you have to be, I think a lot of the time you talk about this, the report talks about it as the cost to growth. I think that's uh, fair enough. That's good, uh, a good way to describe what you're talking about. Sometimes you go to talk about the economic cost right, or the economic losses of the conflict. And again, you have to be careful because normally when we talk about the economic cost, you know, we include the cost of GDP, but then also we try to include uh, non-monetary costs. You know, so in fact, we try to quantify the cost of that child's life uh, or, or the cost of the reduction in uh, life expectancy. And you can argue about you know, how to do that and whether it is legitimate to put a cost on someone's life. But uh, that's, if you're talking about economic costs, that's what it is. It's the cost to output plus the uh, monetary non-market costs. Um, so here you'll, it's really the cost to output that you're measuring and, um, uh, or, as you call it, uh, the growth cost. I think that's, that's very legitimate. I thought it's done pretty well you know, in terms of measuring the cost to output. You can argue about the techniques and the regressions, but I thought overall it's done pretty well. The only thing you know, I, was, I thought you could uh, cover off was that basically you know, you're comparing actual GDP to counterfactual, what the GDP would have been without the conflict. And yeah, normally we're much more worried about the counterfactual because we don't, it doesn't exist. So we've got to estimate it. And so there's quite a lot of text that goes into the counterfactual. But in this case, you've actually got to worry about the actual. I mean, how do they, are they still calculating GDP in Syria? I mean, is there still a statistics office? Because, um, you know, you, I mean, half the, half the country's not under government control. Uh, so are there two or three statistical offices? Um, so I would have liked to see more about how GDP is actually is calculated in such an uh, extreme uh, situation. I thought that was the one part that was uh, missing. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I guess the most... Uh, the, the hardest questions come about the rationale, and Emma's explained why they've done that. And I guess anything that keeps us on the agenda um, is is good. Um, 
Yeah, it's, I think you know, everyone is convinced this is a terrible conflict that has to end. So I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, it costs that much. No, we really must make an effort uh, to end it. Um, but, yeah, I think it would contribute to the policymakers' um, discussion and uh, discussion with organisations like the World Bank and then when it comes to reconstruction. So, yeah. Let me just go on to the second issue uh, I wanted to raise, you know, which is the funding issue. I mean, the key, you know, apart from the settlement and ending the conflict, and I mean, that's a whole bunch of issues that I'm not qualified to address. I mean, there seems to have been some good developments recently with the ceasefire. Um, yeah, but apart from that issue, which I'm just not competent to address, I mean, the, the immediate uh, relief issue is, uh, is critical and, uh, you know, has not been done well you know, so far. So there have been massive uh, funding gaps in the uh, response and even the most recent response um, in uh, the London conference, I think, right, which got a very good uh, response, I think still uh, fell short of, uh, of what was needed. And in particular, uh, Australia and New Zealand, because we have an interest in both, we've fallen short in our contribution. Um, so Oxfam calculates a fair share. And uh, according to Oxfam, in 2015, Australia gave 37% of our fair share and New Zealand uh, gave 15% of its fair share. So good that we're going to take refugees. Um, you know, we, they seem to have gone very quiet on that front, um, but assuming the refugees eventually will come. But in terms of funding, it seems uh, we really have fallen short, and that's a uh, cause of concern. It should have been especially embarrassing at this London conference, you know, where uh, some $5 billion was pledged, that we managed to pledge uh, $15 million, which is 0.3%. I mean, really, you know, Australia, we're going to contribute 0.3%. That's uh, really appalling, I think. So uh, I think we, we should take stock of that. But it's not just an Australian issue, it's also a global issue. And there is a general underfunding of uh, responses to disaster, especially chronic disasters. And uh, we've actually just put out a policy brief, which I'm going to um, kind of uh, briefly allude to. And uh, we, well, not we estimate, we report in uh, the, the funding gap in 2014 was $7.5 billion, in 2015 was $8.6 billion. So, for example, in 2014, the UN put out appeals for $19.5 billion. They got $12 billion. So there's $7.5 billion shortfall. So with that kind of shortfall, uh, it's not surprising that Syria is also not getting uh, the funding uh, that it needs. You know, it's, there's no big uh, public response to these kind of chronic disasters that go on year after year. That's why we need these reports. And, and the photo exhibitions to keep the interest. But we also need a better mechanism uh, to attract funding. And we, we, that mechanism, uh, we argue, has to consist of two things. Uh, one is simply more money. Um, so Julie Bishop, uh, you know, when she was criticised for this very uh, tepid response, you know, put out the challenge to the NGOs, well, where should the money come from? And, of course, the NGOs would say, well, you should uh, not cut the aid budget. <laughs> you should uh, restore the aid, and I guess that will come from another part of domestic expenditure or increased taxes or an increased deficit, and I, I agree with that. We should have more aid. But given that we don't, um, that is a question, where should the money come from? And I think we should say that within the, our limited aid budget, uh, the humanitarian response should get a greater priority. I mean, there is no more pressing need than the people who are currently dying in, uh, in Syria and who are suffering uh, you know, in Lebanon and Jordan so much on an everyday basis. So we should be putting more funds into uh, disasters and especially into these chronic 
disasters. And then second, um, we argue that there needs to be a mechanism to institutionalise this. So it shouldn't be down to the annual funding pledges. That doesn't work well in a situation where you know, because you've had such a massive hit, as this report documents, that there will be a need for many years, you know, not just for reconstruction, but for uh, relief and for disaster. So there needs to be an, in, an institutional uh, global humanitarian fund. Uh, there are some small funds at the moment, but they're very small. They're you know, one, two billion dollars, so they're quickly exhausted. They don't, they're not of the scale that's needed. So just as we have a, a global climate fund, you know, we have a global fund for uh, diseases, we have a global partnership for education, we argue, for a global humanitarian fund so that we can uh, respond more appropriately to the um, sort of scale of uh, disaster that we're seeing uh, in a country like Syria. Uh, I'll stop there. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thanks, Stephen. I'm sure uh, Emma will have enjoy answering some of those uh, challenges and those questions soon. And we're going to open it up for questions in the moment. But uh, just before we do, I'd like to start perhaps by asking Kevin the first question and uh, asking Kevin if you'd, uh, with your international legal expertise, if you'd like to talk to us a little bit about the fact that the recent draft agreement between the European Union and Turkey provides for the return to Turkey of all asylum seekers including Syrians who reach Europe. Does that agreement violate the obligations of EU states under international human rights and refugee law? Uh, yes, thank you for that one. Um, the, the draft agreement between the EU and Turkey, uh, which is due to be confirmed at an EU summit on Thursday, uh, does, as you say, provide for uh, return to Turkey of all those refugees, of whom most, but not all, are Syrians, uh, who found their way into Europe over the last few months. Uh, of course, there's great domestic pressure in, uh, in Europe uh, to deal with the uh, refugee problem. Uh, Chancellor Merkel's government has just suffered uh, severe losses in three state elections, so the political pressure uh, on European governments uh, to achieve a solution has been very considerable. Uh, the... The problems are twofold. One, if this will amount to a mass expulsion, that would be certainly contrary to international law. Uh, and secondly, uh, that when and if uh, these people are returned to Turkey, uh, that they should have all their rights under the Refugee Convention. Uh, that is, that their claims should be processed, uh, they should not be subject to refoulement, return to Syria, uh, and that they should have the right to education, health, social security, all of which are guaranteed by the Refugee Convention. Uh, Turkey is a party to the Refugee Convention. Uh, Turkey has a sophisticated bureaucracy. It probably has the capacity to, to manage some numbers uh, of refugees. But we are, after all, talking about hundreds of thousands of people, probably in excess of a million. Uh, so there is real concern uh, about whether Turkey would have the capacity to uh, accommodate these people uh, and to assure them the rights that they are guaranteed under the Refugee Convention. Uh, so it depends upon uh, the way in which Turkey deals with these people who are to be returned to Turkey under this agreement, uh, whether the EU should be considered in violation of its international law obligations towards refugees. Thank you. It's extensive, yeah? <laughs> Thank you very much. And Sahar, 
you come to us from Amman and from Jordan. Can you tell us what Jordan's response to the Syria crisis has been and what World Vision has been doing to address the refugees seeking protection in Jordan? Uh, well, since the crisis, um, Jordan has been hosting around six, uh, over than uh, 600,000 refugees in uh, formal camps and in host communities. 80% of the of total uh, refugee population are residing on host communities, while 20% only in formal camps. And this has put an immense pressure on Jordan uh, resources and services. As you may know, um, Jordan has uh, very scarce resources in terms of water and energy. It imports around um, 93% of its energy. So uh, providing these public services to refugees was a big challenge for, uh, for, uh, for uh, refugees and it compromised um, Jordan's ability to meet uh, the needs of Jordanians themselves. And um, what uh, World Vision um, uh, done is to adopt a multi-sectoral uh, approach with uh, many cross-cutting issues and to focus on um, the services where uh, uh, Jordanians and Syrians compete the most. So uh, the biggest uh, um, sector is education. We have in Jordan around 50% only of Syrian refugees are enrolled in formal education. So and another um, sector is the wash, uh, which is water, hygiene, and sanitation. Access to water is, uh, is uh, reported to be the main source of tension between host communities and refugees. And that's why it's, 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 it's one of the main sectors in uh, World Vision Jordan. Another sector is the child protection to ensure that children, uh, refugee children, have the access to protection services along with the children, with the vulnerable Jordanians, and uh, renewable energy. It's one of the also of the sectors that uh, World Vision has been uh, uh, working on. So far, since the start of the crisis, World Vision managed to reach around, uh, over than three hundred thousand refugees and uh, Jordanians in host communities providing these services. And uh, with the cross-cutting issues such as gender, we are trying now to empower gender within, within all of our, of our sectors. And also uh, social cohesion is one of the main issues that we are trying to do is to uh, decrease the tension between host communities and, uh, and refugees and also to build the resilience. Resilience is one of, uh, of our cross-cutting issue to build the resilience of refugees, host communities, and also the governmental institutions to reduce um, uh, the social tension. And, and because social tension is multi-directional, it's happening on the horizontal level between host communities and refugees, and uh, on vertical level between host communities and the institution that govern them. So what we are trying to do is to decrease the tension between host communities and refugees and build the capacities of, uh, of public services uh, to provide quality services to, to host communities and refugees, which help to decrease the, the vertical tension that uh, might happen between host communities and, uh, and, public, uh, and public services. Thank you. So as you can see, we've got a wide range of expert opinions here. And we'll invite your questions, but just before I do, the lawyer amongst us wants to respond <laughs> to the questions that Stephen asked. <laughs> so we're going to give uh, 
um, Emma in a couple of minutes just to respond to those questions and then please ask you um, only to say that I really welcome um, critical comments on the report, and I think all the authors do, and as does Frontier Economics. So thank you, Stephen. That was um, it's really instructive, and I think that the two points um, that you made, particularly about the cost of conflict for children. So, and we discussed this earlier that it is very difficult to measure um, the cost of conflict on children, but as you say, it gets to the point of how you quantify the loss of a child, and. Um, I think that's certainly something that um, if we do happen to have the opportunity to do another report, I do hope not because the conflict will end and we will be in the reconstruction phase. Um, but if that is the case, I think that's certainly something that, that as an NGO we need to look at and I think we can, we can always do better. Um, and so that, that feedback is really appreciated. Um, on the figures, that's something, um, and your mention of the Office of Statistics that whether there's one functioning or not. And I think that's been the biggest challenge um, across the board. There's even just the measure of loss of life. Um, the UN official figures is 250,000. Um, some of the Syrian NGOs and policy centres say up to almost half a million people or 470,000. So even that really significant and terrible figure is really difficult to measure, let alone, as you say, some of the, the economic costs and GDP type um, uh, the, and what would go into the counterfactual scenario as well. So really appreciate the comments and um, really welcome them. So thank you. Does anyone have a question? Yeah, I've got one just around um, maybe the economic side of things and potential hidden costs in regards to the breakdown of civil society and institutions. So if we're looking at GDP, obviously that's an incredibly important figure to be focusing on. But is there any way of capturing, measuring or estimating the timeframes or the cost of rebuilding institutions, you know, things like school, government departments, centralised authorities and public services that go into that 10 to 15 year rebuilding phase. <laughs> yeah, it's always confusing when you have a uh, disaster, right, because they always do these costing exercises, yeah, whether you're costing the reconstruction or, or costing the damage. And they're two different things, right? Obviously, the, uh, if the school building is destroyed, uh, that is the damage, and the cost of that is the cost of rebuilding it. But, um, yeah, if that school building uh, then results in children not going to school, yeah, that creates an additional cost that is above the cost of rebuilding the school. Yeah, so they're two different things, I guess. And um, the, this report is about the damage, right? So not the cost of reconstruction. You'd expect the cost of reconstruction to be less and the cost of the damage. Um, and those, I mean, they, yeah, to the extent that the breakdown of civil society contributes to a lower GDP, it's in the report. Yeah, probably some of it is, and probably the rest of it's not, and probably very hard to, to get at. Um. Uh, thank you. I've just um, had some thoughts about the quantification of a child's life. Looking forward to reading the report, which I haven't actually seen, but uh, you may be familiar with uh, the Burden of Disease program. It, uh, it came out of WHO in 1990, it was the first global burden of disease estimate, started by a health economist. Uh, and it's now run out of um, the Gates funded Institute of Metrics and Evaluation. That, uh, that they take very seriously the quantification of, uh, of a child's life, indeed, of any human being. I would have thought that 
you guys with Frontier Economics would have a wonderful opportunity to do that. And just to, to frame it simplistically, it's been some time since I was involved in this program with WHO, but you would take a child's life uh, with the assumption of giving a 90 year, if you imagine 90 years in full health. And clearly, if the child dies at, say, age five, it's 85 life years lost. But the really salient feature here is the disability, um, where mental health is a huge part of that. And indeed, um, I think it was the global burden of disease estimates of 2,000 show mental health, including mental health following disasters, um, are a huge contribution to the global burden of disease. So just to illustrate, if, if you say, wait a minute, at point one, a child survives this conflict at age 10, say, and is destined to live 80, another 80 years, but losing point one per year, well, there's eight disability adjustment life years daily. I, I think you've got an opportunity here to, to quantify that in how many dailies have been lost, because then that allows governments of the world then to compare it to non-communicable disease, infectious disease, etc. And I think you'd be astounded by, by the disability that would come out of this conflict. Thank you. And I'll just I'll briefly respond just that you're absolutely right, and that is something that we have we were having discussions about in this report. Um, about as I was talking before, the lives lost, we can there's some talk about the quantification of that terribly, but it's the question of, as you say, um, who has been the children that have been wounded um, and have survived these attacks on schools, um, hospitals, inside Syria. Um, so we, we, very, we don't know the numbers inside Syria um, and very little people can access these communities. So you're absolutely right. That, that is certainly something we've talked about, about the next. And so that will be part of the reconstruction as well as how you manage the, the psychosocial well-being of those, those children and also the, the disability and how that affects the, the community. So um, absolutely take that on notice that that is something um, that we're going to look at for sure. I can't promise a report like this, but that is certainly something that, and our programming, and I don't know if you want to respond on the Jordan side of things, what we do on psychosocial with refugees who've escaped. Um, I, I, I should qualify. That was just one of many. Oh, absolutely. No, no, definitely. Absolutely. A huge but it's a and very as an advocacy tool, yeah. it's wonderful. And it's a very, very good example, actually, and something that we um, across World Vision do look at, certainly psychosocial and certainly disability. So it was an excellent example. Thank you. Thank you. Did you want to Well um, uh, providing service to disability is one of the uh, underfunded um, uh, sector, even um, when it's come to development programming in Jordan. I used to work in on, on in these programs, that's why uh, um, we uh, we managed to have some developmental gain. Uh, we tried to to enroll uh, children with disability in, in schools. However, after the far, uh, the crisis, the Syrian crisis, um, the ability uh, to reach schools uh, for these children uh, uh, was at risk because the children uh, because the schools are overcrowded and uh, and uh, they. They, they cannot accept more children. Another thing, what Jordan did is 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 uh, is um, uh, applied as um, a preventive measure, 
And uh, it has conducted several vaccination campaigns for Syrian refugees, including Jordanians as well, to prevent uh, diseases such as polio, because uh, that's one of the concerns for the government that the polio re may re-emerge re again after, after uh, um, um, eliminating it in Jordan. So uh, the government has applied um, many um, preventive uh, campaigns to, to, to help uh, these children and to, to prevent re-emerging of, uh, of this communicable disease uh, again. Um, I'm Jane for um, the talk, and my question is, and I apologize, I haven't read the, the report either. Um, my question is for Sahar uh, regarding um, uh, whether there are any uh, differences um, across the various uh, host countries, so uh, Syria, uh, sorry, um, Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon, and whether uh, the challenges faced by, um, we know obviously that the three countries are very different, and whether um, uh, the, their approaches, the NGOs' approaches in those three different countries are sort of ad adapting to the differences in uh, the host countries. Well, yeah, when it comes to, to, to approaches, yeah, World Vision and, and Syria operate differently than World Vision and Jordan, and uh, differently in World Vision, uh, World Vision Lebanon operate differently that, than World Vision in, uh, in Syria and in Jordan. So, yeah, um, the challenges, yeah, there are some uh, differences uh, in terms of differences. For instance, the tension between um, Syrian refugees and Lebanese uh, is higher compared to, to Jordan. So a lot of social cohesion uh, challenges there. Um, they, uh, in terms of refugee livelihood, in Turkey, they are, uh, um, refugees have more space to work, more formal space. However, in Jordan, no, they have a very limited uh, space. So uh, we are working now on, on increasing the formal space for refugees to, to access to livelihood uh, opportunities and, uh, and yeah. No, I just commented because Iraq is also another country bearing costs, yeah. yes. which I think is not covered in the report. No. Um, could have been, and yes. of course, but no, it's not a criticism. <laughs> I mean, when you think another, about it, the, <laughs> the costs ripple out, right? I mean, the cost for Europe, it's kind of um, breaking down yeah. social cohesion in Europe, or at least posing a massive challenge to the European constitution, and they're introducing these extreme measures, and as well as measures against terrorism. Uh, you have the US threatening to ban Muslims, yeah. or at least one candidate threatening to <laughs> ban Muslims from entry. I mean, the costs of this uh, crisis are uh, worldwide, and I guess the only sliver of hope is that now the costs are being felt more by Europe. Mm. Um, I'm sure it's still nothing like what Jordan and Lebanon are going through, but they're felt more by Europe, and, and maybe now there's more pressure to reach a settlement, and hence we're seeing the, peace fight, the ceasefire. Well, I think when it comes to Iraq, it's, it will be difficult to distinguish between the cost of yeah. conflict, because the, the prior um, uh, conflict and uh, the sectarian war that the country has, uh, has mm. been going through, that's why it will be maybe hard to... to and, and people have, I guess, in Iraq too, there's been double displacement. So people yeah. have been displaced one, two, three, sometimes even four times, um, particularly if you've been a Palestinian across 
um, Iraqis to and fro. So there's, it, it is very complex, yeah, um, the Iraqi conflict. And, and certainly our operations, World Vision's operations, are based in Erbil in the Kurdish region. And um, we are responding both to the Iraqi conflict and to the Syrian refugees, but certainly the displaced, internally displaced people in Iraq um, form a lot of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, is it, yeah, it's a complicated context indeed. Um, yeah, if I may, um, <laughs> another point that, um, that the limited global funding space and the globalised world through an extra billion that gets shifted necessarily to Syria is a billion that can't be spent on another humanitarian crisis elsewhere. And this is noting the, the increasing trend in displaced populations around the world. I think 2015 was uh, an all-time post-World War II record of 60 million, 59 million displaced people around the world leaving country. Um, and to consider the, the risks and consider that this is implicitly about advocacy, to what extent are you able to use World Vision's networks to actually show to the world that this is what can happen when a series of political crises and local and regional crises uh, and governance issues and interacts with border changes. So everything from Basar al-Ashad subsidising cotton and cotton is notoriously a user of fresh water at a time when they had unprecedentedly long droughts in that and all arguments of attribution to climate change aside, then it could be a, an opportunity for advocacy uh, much more broadly. Um, that is absolutely something that we grapple with. It's, um, as Daryl mentioned earlier, World Vision Respond is currently responding to 19 crises, crises or emergencies across the world. Um, and that's just in our humanitarian response. We have a whole... Um, swath of development um, work as well. So um, resources are tied too. So as you say, it would be wonderful to join the dots and that's certainly um, something as with our policy team in Australia we'd like to do more of. Um, it's just a case of, um, of collecting and um, having time to sit together with these 19 emergencies and the extraordinary people responding to them and extracting the, the information that's needed. Um, I think um, working in the last 18 months in humanitarian policy has been has stretched, I think, a lot of the community and t- been able to sit down and take stock of that is would be wonderful, but it's been a bit of a luxury um, given the resourcing of the humanitarian policy community across the, across the globe. I think even um, the Office of... Um, the humanitarian coordinator, um, who's now Stephen O'Brien, I think the policy branch there is is doing some extraordinary work, but still struggling to keep up. Um, I think the other forum for what you've mentioned is quickly approaching, um, and that's the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul in May. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of policy discussion, and I think some of the people in the room have been um, part of that discussion, certainly in this region. Um, so... It's a very live topic. It's just a case of um, the the buzzword in the humanitarian community is coordination, and it's coordinating across um, 
that those emergencies, those responses, because each of those emergencies has, you know, 10 to 20 agencies responding to them, um, governments. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily complex, and I'm not saying that as an excuse. It's more as an as a explanation as to why these, these policy issues are hard to put together. Um, I think it's a great report. Um, my question, I guess, is about the way you could use the yes. findings. And I know that the ACFID and the, the humanitarian community in general is trying to get governments to, and the international community to respond better to slow onset crisis. And this was a crisis in the making for some time. Um, but it's very difficult for, for the right leaders to be pulled in the early stages, and we see that with drought responses and um, yes. sort of threats of famine. So I was wondering if you could use this kind of analysis and maybe there's a secondary piece of analysis that looks at the opportunity cost, I guess, for not acting immediately yeah. or um, looking at the comparison of had the international community acted earlier um, with the speed and perhaps depth that the humanitarian community was requesting. So just whether the panel has any thoughts on how you can use this kind of analysis to advocate for early intervention. Well, um, uh, for us, we have been advocating for for the sense of the crisis for more funds from the international community. So this is not a new call. However, what this report presented is um, and showed is how to use this uh, this kind of fund, the humanitarian assistance, to um, uh, in long-term investment plan, and and how we can use this um, this kind of assistance more eff effectively. This, so. This is how can we use the finding, and on how can use we use uh, the this uh, the humanitarian assistance, and in which uh, um, uh, kind of 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 uh, at what kind of plant that we can use to to ensure uh, the if, uh, more effective use of uh, the humanitarian assistance. Yeah, I'd like to ask, can I ask uh, yeah. uh, do, do you notice the underfunding in Jordan? Like how, yeah. does it, how does it manifest itself? Well, uh, the most underfunded sectors um, are uh, refugees. Sadly, the humanitarian assistance uh, in Jordan has created a widespread dependency among refugees. So, and uh, uh, this was um, aggravated by the restrictive policy of government toward refugees' uh, livelihood. And um, what the report suggests is to increase investment by engaging uh, refugees more in, in livelihood opportunities. So um, in the future, this will decrease refugees' uh, dependency on, on, on humanitarian assistance. And, and um, also uh, um, uh, increase the economic growth of hosting communities of hosting countries. So it's a win-win situation at, uh, at the end. Uh, I was just going to add, uh, intervention is a risky term to use yeah. in this sort of context uh, because it uh, calls up the spectre particularly of uh, the intervention in Libya, which is now regarded by practically everybody involved, including President Obama, as having been a terrible mistake. Uh, and so uh, what we're talking about here is assistance from the international community rather than an intervention in one of these civil conflicts. Yeah, I guess my point is more, 
if we're advocating for early um, early action, then this sort of by quantifying the cost of ongoing crisis, a better case for a stitch in time rather than delayed response. And I think, and this is great because I think. The idea of this report is to start changing that discussion and looking at opportunities that we can um, find other avenues that various people have pointed out tonight. And that's why we're doing this forum and other and consulting, because this is just the start of something in terms of looking at crises differently um, and certainly what the um, Crawford Centre has um, done on the humanitarian financing model and suggestions for reform is one part of that, I think, um, and how you deal with certainly, as I said, the cost of conflict is outrageous. Why would, it, why would you allow it to continue? Um, and there's a whole other um, aspect to that, and that's the military um, aspect of things. And as World Vision, we don't get involved in those discussions, but um, it is outrageous and investing early to prevent and peace build. And that's another big aspect of World Vision's work is how to work with youth to be the peace builders. Um, and recently in New York, there was a great UN Security Council resolution that came through on UN, um, youth, peace and security, which um, there's some real opportunities there as well. So, yeah, there's, there's so much possibility um, and, and opportunity for more advocacy and good policy work as well. Yeah, I just reinforce this point by Kevin. It's not the assistance is not going to stop. I don't think it's going to actually stop the no. crisis, right? Maybe yeah. a different military strategy would have. You can debate that with Libya and various examples, yeah. but other assistance is just yeah. stopping people dying, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. comes down to it. And we're almost out of time. Um, the last question. You've all kind of touched on the conflict from different perspectives and noting that the World Humanitarian Summit is coming up. From kind of each of the angles that you looked at the conflict, what would a win for Syria and the region look like and a positive outcome from the, world, the summit look like for Syria? Well, um, uh, it's to, to invest on, on the resilience of, of refugees and the host communities. For children to um, to increase funding and education because it's the best resilience strategy for children and for refugees, youth and adult is uh, to open more formal spaces for them, more livelihood opportunities uh, for uh, for refugees because um, by doing this you are giving them the skills, the knowledge, the education to sustain their living inside those communities if the crisis continues. And if the um, uh, if they return to their uh, to Syria, they will equipped with the enough knowledge and enough education and the skills that will enable them to rebuild their country again. Well, were you asking about a possible solution to the conflict in Syria? I think so, in the context of the World Humanitarian Summit coming up, and you know, from what I understand, everybody's talking about whatever issue they want and governments at this point are trying to work out how to form the coalitions, you know, which coalitions will they form for effective change. So, I mean, from looking at from the Syria conflict, what is a good outcome that the summit could produce, could deliver? Well, in terms of uh, humanitarian relief, um, well, the, the current cessation of hostilities uh, has been more successful than most people expected. Uh, there have been violations on all sides, but not of a scale which would break down the, the, uh, the cessation of hostilities. 
And so that may continue beyond the two-week time frame which was originally agreed. Uh, and President Putin's surprising announcement today that he was going to withdraw the main part of Russian forces in Syria and that he was instructing his foreign minister to put uh, major effort behind finding a solution uh, does offer some hope of an, a, a sustained cessation of hostilities while what are likely to be very difficult negotiations continue and a sustained cessation of hostilities would allow uh, much more humanitarian relief, uh, some of which has managed to get through over the last couple of weeks. So in terms of, of relieving the suffering of the Syrian people, uh, the current prospects are a little better than they have been, uh, but uh, only a fool would suggest what the eventual outcome might be in terms of a, a political settlement. Yes, no, we have this, I see, this is a policy brief. <laughs> Not too offstage, World Vision. Sorry, we, also, we also like orange. <laughs> no, I see we put out, if you're I don't think the world, the Global Humanitarian Summit, would deliver anything for Syria. And Syria has been well served, I think, by this London conference. And, and Europe is so scared by this refugee crisis. I think Germany alone gave $3 billion. It's remarkable. But, uh, yeah, the more general problem is the uh, lack of underfunding of these chronic crises. And, um, yeah, we, if you're interested, Robin Davies put out a couple of blogs on the summit. And, yeah, generally uh, fairly pessimistic in terms of the, you know, they had a high-level panel which delivered the sort of stuff you normally get from a high-level panel report calling for a grand compact, uh, more funding in return for more efficiency, which, of course, everyone would agree to, but it doesn't actually translate into anything on the ground. So, yeah, we've come up with an alternative proposal, which um, if they adopt would actually mean something, which is this Global Humanitarian Fund. And I think, yeah, it comes out of this. For too long, these crises have been relegated. They're not seen as the main business for development. Uh, they should be, and uh, there should be a global fund. Of course, this is just one proposal. It won't come out of the summit, but uh, who knows? We're going to start advocating for it and uh, see where it leads to. Um, and I'd just say... <clears throat> On the World Humanitarian Summit for Syria, I think it's mostly been covered, but what would be really wonderful to see, and it works on the Global Humanitarian Fund type proposal, which is um, a firm commitment to bridging what's called the humanitarian development divide. So Syria is an extraordinary example of something that has started as a humanitarian response, but will definitely move into a development type response. Um, and NGOs as well as donor governments and um, policymakers across the world need to start thinking about this and, and, and acting on it. So I'd like to see um, a, a, a high-level commitment to that and, and certainly I think World Vision um, would, uh, is pushing for that at the World Humanitarian Summit. Well, thank you. Our time is up. Would you join me in thanking our panel? You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.